Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm honored to have Kevin Briggs join us on episode 38 of the Creative Giant Show today. For around 20 years, Sergeant Kevin Briggs, a retired California Highway Patrol officer, showed up to work every day, not knowing whether it was going to be a day that he encouraged someone not to commit suicide by jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge. Because of his work, more than 200 people chose to start a new life rather than ending the one they had, and Kevin was nicknamed the Guardian of the Golden Gate Bridge. After his retirement, Kevin continued his service by becoming an international crisis management, suicide prevention, and leadership skills presenter. His story and lived experiences have been featured as a TED Talk on the New York Magazine, People Magazine, USA Today, as well as many other magazines, newspapers, and radio across the world. He is currently working on his autobiography with a scheduled release in July 2015. Through his organization, Pivotal Points, Kevin is mapping a movement as he speaks publicly about his suicide prevention and crisis encounters with people on the bridge, as well as his personal mental health struggles while serving in the Army, as a police officer, as a cancer survivor, as a family member and father, and as a leader and co-worker. Kevin spends his time speaking at mental health, physical health, behavioral health, university, first responder, law enforcement, and corporate trainings and conferences, promoting suicide prevention, crisis management, and leadership skills, and he consults and advises major corporations. He also speaks at various mental health, behavioral health, consumer, and advocacy events. Kevin, thanks so much for the work you've done and the lives you've saved and for joining us on today's episode. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I love origin stories, and I do this on every episode. So let's go back to the beginning of your days as the guardian of the Golden Gate Bridge. Tell us about your first encounter and how that how you coped with it and how it changed you. My first encounter was was horrible. It really was. I received a call of a woman over the rail on the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, on the bridge. There's this It's like an I-beam that's over the pedestrian rail. And most of the time when someone goes over, they stand on that rail contemplating what they're going to do. You know, if they are going to leap or come back over that rail. So I received this call and I respond down there and it didn't take me very long, just several minutes. And the whole time I was thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say to this person? I wasn't trained for this. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I was a mess. But when I got there, I walked up to this woman and she she was uh, very emotional. This was this was a very emotional time, of course. And I just started talking to her. I think I did everything wrong you could. As she was speaking to me, I told her, yeah, I understand and, and things will get better and all these things that I don't know if things are going to get better. I don't understand what she's going through. But I was very, very lucky in the fact that maybe she took pity on me and she did come back over that rail. It took some time, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, something like that. Um it was an eye opener for me. I figured, well, I better get some training. I better talk to some people who have done this type of thing. Just so that we have an idea of, of space and time, when was this? 
this was around, I started with the high retrol in 1990, but it wasn't until around 95, I believe, when I started working on the bridge. For context, um, how many people um, decide that um, they're going to jump that we don't manage to save? Accounts, we're looking at, at realistically 40 to 60 folks a year that leap off of that bridge. Wow. I had no idea it was that many. Yeah. Yeah. And at least that, if not more, that we do encounter and help out. And we do engage them and, and take to local hospitals for help. Well, we, we save as many as we can, you know. Right. And I will tell you this, the ones that are over the rail that we do get a chance to talk to, the vast majority of those folks do come back over that rail and we get them some help. Now, we, we do lose some now and again. Um, and what I do, it's it's very disturbing. It's disturbing for all of us. You know, it, it hits us hard. I think uh, when I do it and it happens to me, I, I think I failed. You know, I know in my heart that I tried as, as best as I could. But it hurts. It really does. And it just uh, it's, it just starts with me. And then it goes out through the families. And it's tough. It really is. It's tough. Yeah, we have some similarities in our backgrounds, uh, mine and more of a military experience. And that, you know, just things happen and you do your best. And, you know, the good outcome always doesn't doesn't always happen, you know, and you got to live with that. So um, in 90, you said it was 94 when you had your first encounter or so. That 95, I think it was right around that time. 95. Okay. Um, so was this type of training around or the type of training around what to do in these situations just not really a part of the, the training of officers? Or was it, um, you know, just something that, that was kind of, you know, lightly mentioned it wasn't taken i'm just kind of curious about how you had been prepped at that time to handle this situation right as far as my academy training no it was very very little on this if any that i recall and then as far as on the job training there was none there was absolutely none and it was barely spoken about so that that wasn't right that wasn't right to me to anybody else that works on that bridge that was in our my position as being new or, you know, the folks that we're talking to. That's that's not right. So it has changed um, a little bit. I'm, I'm hoping it gets better and better, but they are getting some training for those folks. I know that many police departments go through extensive training and there are uh, negotiator conferences every year, you know, around the United States and around the world. Um, I wish the higher patrol would, would take a little better action with those. Is it just a lack of prioritization, a lack of training time, or what, what do you think it is? Generally, money, a lack of prioritization, yes. You know, to be honest with you, yes. Okay. I've, I've been there, too, so I understand. <laughs> I don't like it, but, but you know, I'm not going to tell you something different that's, that's wrong. So, Yeah, well, when we talk about the different um, forces, you know, police forces, firefighter forces, the, the military, things like that, like... Um, sometimes for people not in the know, there's there's a lot of um, lack of understanding about why things like this don't pick up. And it's sometimes not understood that there's limited training dollars available. Exactly. Exactly. And there's limited training time available. And we have, all things speaking, relatively small forces. Um, and so by the time you start talking at training for programming, training for the man hours of, of, of having people off the force and having people man their position, it gets pretty expensive pretty quickly. It really does. And for states like I know in California, they're trying to enact something to have every peace officer 
trained in mental health, mental health awareness and when, what to look for in signs and symptoms. Um, but the cost of that is, is so much. It really is because you're looking at every single sheriff, police, you know, like BART, BART police departments, the highway patrol. That's a lot of money. It really is. To me, it's worth it. But, you know, I'm, I'm not the shot caller on all this. So I definitely understand. So l- let's go back to sort of that first experience and how it changed you. Um, if you can, like, share the emotional journey with us, because I think that's what's so um, what's what we want to share about this, both for you and for the other people in the force. Just, just how do you carry that? And, and how do you go home and, and, you know, turn on the news and watch TV again and things like that, you know? Well, back that first time, you know, I stumbled. I really stumbled through this. I was just very fortunate and lucky that 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 individual uh, did come back over the rail. As time progressed, I did get training and uh, I was one of the the very few. I was so fortunate to be able to go to the FBI crisis negotiation school. And that helped me out so much. It really did. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned some things that I had been doing correctly and some things that I had not been doing correctly. But any way you look at it, the amount of training, and I can only speak for myself and, and the folks that I've dealt with, officers, um, when we help someone back over, you know, some people say, you saved so many lives. I don't look at it like that. I didn't really save somebody. I, I was maybe a conduit, a helping hand in their darkest time, you know, to, to help them come back over. But I want these folks to do it themselves and empowers them. And it starts their, I would say, a brand new life for them. And it, it starts new. They did this. They had the courage to come back over and face all of these things uh, again and start that new life. So it is really, really cool to look at someone's face when they come back over that rail. They, it looks like a little child because they're confused. You can see um, what's really deep into them. And it's like looking into the eyes of a little child. It really is. You know, they, they don't quite know what's going on, but they're happy. So it, it's really something else. Did it change the perspective that you have on your life and how so? It did as far as being able to speak to people and knowing the importance of speaking to people, especially when you see some signs uh, of what's going wrong. You know, we all like it when things are going right. It's very, very easy to see. But when things are going wrong and to have the courage to walk up to someone and say, you know, let's sit down for a minute. I've noticed this, 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 this and this. Um, you know, let's see what's going on. And maybe it's just a bad day, maybe a bad few days. But what if it isn't? What if they actually are contemplating suicide? How do you do that? How do we talk to them? If they say yes, what do you do? Do you freak out? So, you know, it's very involved. So tell us about the second encounter and what was significantly different the second time that, that you read this. Go ahead. <laughs> the second one was fairly like the, like the same one. As far as I remember, I remember the first one a, a lot more than, than the, than the second one, of course, but um, fairly the same because I had no training, you know, and, and, and taking these, when I was down there, when I first started working there uh, prior to nine 11, there was just one officer down there, the whole shift. And that's, I'm not, I'm not talking just about the Golden Gate Bridge, but down into San Francisco and up and over another four miles or so on the freeway and both sides of that into parking lots and unincorporated areas. So there was a big area to cover. So it just did not encompass the bridge. There was a lot to do and there was just one officer. So I was pretty busy. But after 9-11, the bridge being the big icon that it is, we put more folks down there. 
um, on bicycles and such. And I was on a motorcycle and then we have cars that patrol it. And then the Golden Gate Bridge Highway and Transportation District also hired some patrol officers and they're security officers. They don't have the peace officer powers as we do, but uh, they are there and they, and they really help out a lot. So that amount of work that was there has been divvied up quite a bit. But before 9-11, um, I was handling four to six of these cases a month. It was a lot. Wow. Wow. Which, let's just talk about compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. Um, you know, this is a place where when you deal with this thing four to six times a month or however much it is, you end up carrying a lot of energy, a lot of a lot of people's life story with you, a lot of the tensions of people. You, you know, kind of absorb that. And you know what I mean, Kevin. Like, it just becomes a part of you. Um, Absolutely. How did you handle like yourself personally through throughout these and, and keep your composure and you know really maintain functionality throughout all of this you know a lot of us we don't see what's going on inside of us it, it just accumulates and other people may see it um i didn't see the things that were going on with me as as this depression with me diagnosed with depression started but it accumulated over years and you know, being my own body chemistry and some family history of it, but coupled, of course, with what you see as a police officer, you see things that people aren't really meant to see. Now, if everything is happy and you can just pertain to the bridge, if you can get every single person over that rail, it's fantastic. It's great. But working in this business and any mental health, I tell people, and it's a crappy thing to say, but it is reality. You know, you're going to wind up losing someone. It's just the way it is. And we need to be prepared for that. But even when it happens, it hits us hard. And those days of just suck it up and going to a bar and grabbing a few drinks, uh, it doesn't work. It really doesn't. We're looking at, at a cumulative effect of all of this, of years and years of this thing. I spent 23 years with the Highway Patrol, another three years working in corrections like at San Quentin, and also three years in the Army. I mean, that's a lot of macho stuff where you have to suck it up and not, um, you know, let things out, so to speak. So when you're holding all this in, it builds up stress. And with all that, now I've had uh, heart surgeries. And, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, this has, it takes an effect on you. Whereas if I was going through the academy and someone would have said, hey, this is what we need to talk about, mental health and mental illness and your mental health as an officer. These are the things to look for. And every year being checked, not going in as something negative, but just to get a mental health check. And I certainly don't blame the highway patrol or anybody else. This is the career that I chose and I loved it and I would do it all over again. But I would do it with um, a deliberate intent of, of coming out happy, healthy, a lot more healthier than I am, mind you. But the mental health part, and you know that is so important because if you're not mentally right, it's gonna affect not only your health, but your family and everything that you do on the outside, your work, you know, and your friends and everybody else. So we need to start with our own self-care that is so important. How did you and maybe the department um, really go through some of the barriers that people have around mental health? And I say that because um, when I came back as a veteran, I was a, you know, I was an officer and a leader. And we had to stress so much about the need for people to, to, you know, go see therapists and talk about what they'd been through and things like that. But there, we were facing this huge stigma, this huge wall of saying, you know what, it's okay to be strong, but still need 
um, still need a mental health professional to help you through what you just experienced, because this is not a part of the normal human experience anymore, you know? You're exactly right. And I believe it was 2004 through 2007, we lost 13 officers to suicide just in the highway patrol those years. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a high figure. Then the higher patrol really took a look at this and started to come out with some training for this. And it was departmental wide and that significantly reduced the number of suicides that we have. So that really helped. And what we have now, and we've had it for years, is the employee assistance program to where you can go see a counselor free of charge um, seven times a year. And that really helps. Some people say, I'm not going to go see that. I'm, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, it's going to go on my file or I'll get fired. Everything is confidential. Nobody else knows about it. You call the 1-800 number and set it up yourself. And they work. There's some great counselors there. I've had several officers take advantage of this. And it really does work. I, as a supervisor, would carry these cards for the EAP, the Employee Assistance Program. And when we have an event like this, whatever it may be, this traumatic event, I would give that to the officer and say, hey, just keep in mind this and then call and check on them. And as managers and supervisors, this is our responsibility. These are our folks. And it has really, really helped. We have not lost a person to stress because of that. You know, you, you let them have some time off if they need it. You call them, you check on them. And if they need the EAP, encourage them to go. And that way they maintain their life. And when they maintain their life, they come back, they're at work and they're doing what they want to do. That's fantastic. That, that's really fantastic. Um, just as an aside, one of the things that we did in the, um, it was in the Nebraska National Guard is um, we actually had groups where it was like, not just you talking to a professional, but it'd be, you know, as many vets as we can get in there talking about their experience with an actual, um, you know, certified health professional there. Um, and it lowered the stigma because it was like, rather than going to a bar and drinking and talking about it, it's like, you can go there and you might see, you know, some leaders there. You might see some, you know, you might see your peers there. You might see different people there and it made it okay. It made it okay to talk about this. And there's just a support group for that particular thing. Right. Right. And in law enforcement, you know, that's in military, of course it's big. And it's what I've seen is, is peer to peer tends to work very well. Um, Police tend to be very skeptical of everything. So if you get a manager in there, they're thinking, you know, that manager is going to go out with all this information and do something with it. So but there's very good manager. We They don't do stuff like that. If we're going in there and we're going to talk about this in a debriefing or whatever it may be, it is confidential. It's for those folks in there. It's to help them through that and understand that you're not alone in this and you're not the only one thinking of this. We're all going through this. We all have these kind of thoughts and it's OK it's okay to have these things and we're going to work through it. Good, good. Let's switch to talk a little bit about the body of work that you started building up around, um, you know, these topics. And we've got your release model. We'll talk a little bit about it. Um, but let's start with your quality of life triad because I really like it. Um, tell us a little bit about the genesis and, and what's in this quality of life triad. And um, yeah, let's go from there. Well, when I was diagnosed with depression and uh, it was a, a little interesting because I was in seeing my doctor and I was just I was feeling poorly for a long, long time. I wasn't getting anything accomplished at work. I would be fine. But when I came home, I would wind up just sitting on the couch and I'm talking all day, all weekend. It was very, very strange. So finally, I went to my doctor and I had a physical and I told him this. And I go, I don't know what's going on. I'm not getting anything accomplished in life. And he had me take this little written test came back in a few minutes and said, Kevin, 
He goes, I think you have depression. He goes, well, how do you feel about that? And mind you, I've had cancer. I've had heart surgeries. I've had uh, traumatic brain injuries. <laughs> I mean, a lot of stuff. So I go, doctor, how do you think I feel about depression? You know, of course, it, what do you mean? I, oh, so it's just something else on that list now. So I said, all right, let's work on this. So um, part of my uh, going through this was, was with medication. And, and it's not for everybody. It does work for me. So we're good with that. But I wanted some other things to do because you can't just rely on that. So I really sat down and did some thinking on this and came up with what I call my quality of life triad. And if you have a triangle and then you have a triangle in the middle, that's your quality of life supported by a professional care, your support. And I put my own self-care on the very top of that because I'm the one who has to take charge of this. I can't rely on other people to come and say, hey, you're having a bad day. You need to do this or try this or you should try this. It's upon me to pull my bootstraps up and start working on this. And then I can start seeing, hey, man, this is going on. What do you think? So it starts with me. And that's why I put it on the top of that triad, the self-care. It's very, very important. So, you know, for context here, here you are, um, guardian of the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, you're a California state um, highway patrol officer. You've got all of these, you know, what other mice might see, you know, as very sort of macho or manly things going on. And here you are talking about the importance of self-care. Um, which it's, I, I love that apart because self-care, it, it gets floated around in different ways. Um, so let's talk about sort of the resistance that you've met, that you've seen, um, with your fellow officers around prioritizing self-care. Before I retired, you know, I, I made this up before I retired and I just retired in November of 20 or 2013. Um, the majority of folks that I shared this with thought it was really, really cool. It's getting to be a new a new age for, for for police officers. We are seeing that mental health is is crucial and the help that we may need. It's OK to ask for help. But there's still those those old uh, old dogs that don't want to come around. And I retired early to come out and talk about quality of life, suicide prevention, crisis management, negotiation skills. And, you know, uh, I'm okay with my retirement money wise, but here's what a guy told me, an old timer. He came up to me and he goes, I know why you're retiring. And he's rubbing his fingers together. Like it's all about the money. I mean, that is what we're still dealing with. That kind of attitude, that negative attitude, where instead of wanting to go out and help, they're still thinking, what can I do for me? Everything's about the money. Or if you have something bad that's going on, you get a friend, you hit a bar, you suck it up and you come back the next day and that's the way it goes. And that's what we're going to work on getting rid of because it simply does not work. I love how different people in the forces, army, you know, police officers love when, when we take, you know, that part, um, that guardian aspect. And I use guardian sort of the platonic. I'm, I'm referencing the plate, you know, the, the republic there. Right. Mm-hmm. And you recognize that there's a different way to be a guardian. Like you can wear the suit, but you can also drop the suit and, and do new things and probably, you know, have a broader, um, broader impact on society than just wearing the suit, you know? And that's, that's what I was hoping for really. And, you know, I look at, and I tell people, it's just Kevin Briggs. I'm your average Joe out here. Um, but if I can help, if people will listen and, and I can make a difference, it's fantastic. When I get to go to conferences all around the world, what's really cool in this is, yeah, maybe I get to get up and, and speak and 
say some things, my experiences, what I've been taught. But it's really cool to get off of that stage and sit in that audience and learn about other people. What's going on with them? What is their experiences? That's what this is about. It's bonding experiences. And since I have opened up about everything about me, my cancer, all these things, which I never spoke about, uh, I thought people would kind of shut me down. Oh, I don't want to be around that guy. He had testicular cancer, all these heart surgeries, high blood pressure, all this. He's a guy's a mess. I have made so many more friends around the world. I've been into Australia, Mexico. I mean, just all over. It has opened my eyes dramatically just by opening up about myself. Because if I'm going to ask other people to do that, I need to be able to set an example. And that's really how I feel. That's how I was when I was a supervisor. Um, it's opened my eyes. It really has. Yeah, there's there's a quote attributed to Plato. I've yet to find the actual reference, but still. Um, it's, be kind for everyone you feed. Everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. There you go. Um, and so I think in many ways, we mental health issues and sort of some of the things we're talking about are really pervasive in our society. And we either have a challenge ourselves or we know someone who does. Um so, you know, we can talk a lot about self-care and a lot about some of these, but really um, for people listening to this, like, so we know about that. Why are people so reluctant to seek help on this? Well, I know a lot of people I can talk for, for just my profession, so to speak, why we don't. A lot of things because um, you think you're going you're gonna to lose your job or other people are going to belittle you. They're going to find out in some way. Or you're less than, if it's less than a man, so to speak, you're, you're not that macho, you can't handle it out there. All these things are false. They really are. You're a human being. You know, it's like when I went up and introduced myself to someone that was over the rail on the bridge, I'm not going to introduce myself and try to build rapport by coming up to them and going, hello, I'm Sergeant Kevin Briggs with, our, with the California Highway Patrol. It doesn't work like that. You walk up. You, I asked their permission to come up and speak with them, and I introduced myself as Kevin. I'm there to help. I know, you can see the monkey suit that I'm in. And this is what we need to get around is, you know, we need this. We need to be mentally healthy, and we need help with it. Sometimes we see things, all of us, everyone, we see things, do things. We have a lot of stress in our lives, every single person out here now. So we need to have those, I'm going to say, positive or good mental health days. Too. And unfortunately, we don't take those a lot. I know as far as us in the highway patrol, we build up a lot of vacation. And what that does is your work, 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 work all the time. That's all building up in you. You're not taking a vacation, so you're not getting that release of the stress and everything else. So this builds up and this, you know, it's it's just today's society. Yeah, the way I like to talk about it is, is, you know, especially in some professions, you have to learn to compartmentalize like the different aspects of your life. And so you have to be able to walk up to someone over the rail and go through all of that. And then to be functional, you have to sort of put that away in yourself, right? And go on and do the next thing. But over time, like the amount that you can put in that little compartment starts to seep through. And, you know, it affects you. You, you know, you get depressed, you have heart problems, like it, that energy has to go somewhere, you know? Exactly. And I, when I talk about this, I talk about bricks on your back and every single one of those events in our lives, whether uh, it's it's with the police department or anything else, we get these lives. Maybe if you lose a child, you know, that's a huge brick on your back. These things, how do we recover from these to be able to continue on? All these, you lose your job, you get a divorce, 
if you're just in school for the kids, you get a bad grade, your parents are pushing you a lot, you're getting pressure to do drugs, all these different things. These are bricks on your back. If they continue, they're going to knock you down. You have to be able to get some of those bricks off of your back so you can continue on. Exactly. Um, which which is a good segue to talk about your release model here. And so, um, so, so listeners understand what we're talking about. This is a model that Kevin has... Um, generated to help with critical responses like people over the bridge, so on and so forth. So um, the acronym is recognize, engage, listen, empathy, accept, support, and encourage. Um, We're going to link to this so you don't have to remember all of that, but I wanted to give you an idea of what we're talking about. So um, if you could look at pieces of this that you think are especially crucial um, to helping someone in need, which ones would you think they, or which ones would you put forward, um, Kevin? Definitely the ability to recognize what's going on with someone, the, the symptoms. And if we just go right down the line, you know, the huge ones are hopelessness and helplessness. The hopelessness, believing that things are terrible and not going to get better. That's huge. If any of us do not have hope, you know, we're, what are you going to do? We're done. What else? Um, feelings of burdensomeness. We see that so many times with folks who are suicidal. They feel they're a burden to their family. They don't want to be around anymore. When actually they're not. You know, um, risk-taking behavior, giving away all their belongings, non-surgical self-injury. We call these cutters. My little boy did this. My 12-year-old boy did this. Here I am traveling all around the country and around the world talking about suicide prevention and crisis management, and it's happening at my house. So, boy, I can tell you what a failure I felt like. And this was just last year. This was a big deal. So he's doing wonderfully now. We had a lot of help. I had a lot of soul searching for myself to be a a better father, a better parent. But these things that I I missed, you know, the increased uh, amount of sleep, or decreased amount of sleep, uh, increasing, starting, drug use, alcohol, all these signs, something that we want to address. You want to address it with, with that person. And, you know, I would go right into, of course, you want to talk about it, the engaging them, the recognizing and engage, but listening to them. Um, so many of us have, you know, we have stuff that's going on. We have stuff going on every day, that week, that month, whatever it is. And we're thinking about all those things instead of, giving that person our full attention. We're going to miss things that they're telling us, little clues that what's going on in their life. But if we gave them their attention and what we use with negotiations are called minimal encouragers, things like, oh, really? I see. Those are things that letting that individual know that you are paying attention, that you're actively engaged in that. You'll really pick up a lot more by listening that way and accepting them for who they are, not to judge them, not to say, you know, you need to do this. You should do this. People don't want to hear that. Have you tried this maybe or giving them some options, but really just be there to support and encourage them, encourage them to seek help if they need it, encourage them to continue on. Um, If we're just there for each other, you know, this is this release model I made is specifically to help people communicate with each other, whether that be a suicidal individual trying to get your kids to do their homework. It's, you know, I made it just so we can have a better understanding of what is going on in each other's lives. Let's talk a little bit more about that acceptance piece, because um, from what I've seen, that that can be the hardest for people um, to not invoke, you know, the either judgments or projections of their own feelings, you know, all the things that come up while you're dealing with someone who's in distress. Um, 
What are some particular ways that that we can? You, you mentioned minimal engagers, but what are some ways that you can kind of tone down that natural urge, you know, to project or, um, you know, unintentionally judge or criticize someone when they're telling you something? You know, take a breath before you speak. And like I tell people, like I have heard, we have two ears and one mouth. So listen twice as much as you're going to speak, but take a breath and go, all right, take it all in and think to yourself, I'm not going to do any good by getting angry and making this person upset or more upset and more angry. What can we do? Let's work the situation, work the issue and see what we can come up with. They're looking for your help. They're there. For, they want to be there to tell you things. They're looking to you for assistance. So if you blow them off or get angry at them, you're going to shut them down and maybe they won't go to somebody else. So they're looking at you. They're confiding in you. They're looking to you to assist them and, and take your time. Think about what you're going to say. If you don't have a good answer, just tell them. I don't have a good answer right now, but I'm here to support you. I care for you. I'm worried about you. And I'm going to go through this with you, both of us together. Good. I want to roll back a, a piece of the conversation there because I think it's important. Um, and I'll give some context here. And a few years ago, um, my wife went through a, a mental health struggle and it was the buildup of PTSD, basically. <laughs> Um, and once we recognized after the fact that that's what it was, I felt really, for lack of words, like embarrassed and shamed and guilty because I'd been trained on how to spot the signs of PTSD and what to do about it. And I just completely missed it in my own home with the person I care about the most, you know? Um, and you had a similar situation going on with your son with, with the cutting. How did you, how did that all um, unveil and, and what did you do to personally work through your own, your own journey with that? Uh, with my little boy, I was actually coming home from uh, a speaking engagement and I was landing at San Francisco airport and I turned on my cell phone and I have two boys, age 14 and age 12. And it was my youngest left me a message and I thought it was a, hey, welcome home, dad. Stop by the house. You know, I am divorced. Stop by the house and I want, you know, we'll take a we'll, uh, chat before you go to your place. But it wasn't. It was little Travis saying, dad, you need to get here quick. Kevin, who is the 14-year-old Kevin Jr., broke an iPad. He's in the backyard. He's very, very angry, and he says he's going to kill himself. So I drove up there, and there's little Kevin in the backyard in the dark. Uh, I watched him for a minute or so before I went out, and then I went out, and I call him baby boy. I've always called him baby boy. I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, hey, baby boy, what's going on? And he just broke down crying, crying really bad. We sat down in the backyard for a good 45 minutes, and and he was very forthright and honest, and, and we talked about what was going on. Um, I had had a divorce. He thought he was the cause of it. There was a lot of things going on. And of course, he wasn't the cause of it. And I just, uh, I wasn't too embarrassed and ashamed to talk about it. So things that I had done, you know, left a big impact on him. He is uh, GPA of 3.7. Very, very good. He was getting some pressure at at school to do drugs. And I had, I didn't realize I was putting pressure on him to get those good grades, but he said I was, so I was, I learned a lot about myself in this. He had, and also he had taken a pen and kind of stuck it in his arm one time. Um, and we call that non-surgical self-injury and kids do that when they're in a lot of pain. When you cut yourself in a place it releases endorphins 
and that masks the pain that you're in. So this is how we get around with the cutters and such. And I, I didn't find out about this till we went to a counselor and I was shocked. I said, I've seen this many, many times on, on folks, but you know, this is happening to my own family. I mean, how could this be happening? How did I miss this? Uh, boy, it was bad. It was really bad. So we, we took counseling. We had counseling and he's doing much, much better. He's doing very, very well. But that hit me so hard is how could I be traveling all over, talking about this, preaching this, and I'm missing the signs in my own home with my own family? It, it, was, it was a huge eye opener. I mean, wow. It was, it was a tough time. How did you work through that yourself? You have to be able to forgive yourself. You know, and, but, but, you know, of course I blame myself, but I readjusted my way of thinking and said, all right, just like the case where he said I was putting too much pressure on him for good grades. Okay. Then I am, I'm not going with my, my, my way of thinking that, uh, no, he's wrong. I'm, I am not putting that much stress on him. If he's telling me that I'm putting stress on him, then I am case closed. Uh, I need to be able to communicate with them more. So I stepped back and really took a a little deal of, of my own priorities and things. And, uh, it was, it was a a big eye opener for me. You know, I prayed a lot and uh, asked for forgiveness from him. It was tough, but this is your family. We, I can preach this, preach this, preach this. When it happens in your own family, it's tough, you know, and I felt so ashamed and embarrassed, but uh, I grew off of that. I grew a lot. So it, it, it did help. Yeah. I wanted to go there. I mean, both for, for me personally. So it's vicarious in that way. But I mean, I think that's, there's so much um, that we take on from people who are struggling. Um, and you know, there, the story that's often told is you know, I could have done this and I could have done that and I should have seen it sooner and so on and so forth. And so there's, that residue that happens from these things. And so thanks for sharing that. So just other people who may have gone through that or be going through that, just have, you know, just understand they're not alone in that scenario. Right. And just, and for my own case, um, with regards to me and, and we were talking about how did I deal with it in that quality of life triad is also a big one. And there's is self-compassion. We screw up. We do. We mess things up. We don't do it intentionally for the most part, but to be able to come back from that. All right. Did we learn something? Yes. We're not going to do that again. You have that self-compassion. Otherwise, things are going to build up and, you know, you're going to go downhill again. So we try our hardest. We try our best. We learn from our mistakes. We have that self-compassion and we move on. Good. Good. Well, Kevin, if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work, what's the one thing you would want them to take away? I would want them to take away to please communicate with each other. Take some time to have a conversation with your friends and your family. Let them know that you care and just be there for them. If you see someone that's hurting, take that opportunity. You know, sometimes opportunities don't present themselves or very few times, but the regret that you will have will last forever if you don't do that. So I was very lucky that I didn't lose my baby boy. So take those opportunities. If we, when you see something that, that may be going downhill with folks. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you very much. It was a, a great pleasure for me. Okay, Creative Giants. So you've heard from Kevin Briggs about the need for both self-care and reaching out to other people who are in need. So 
What can you do today to take better care of yourself and, and, and prioritize that? It's important. We need you. And what can you do to, in this moment, take care of someone in need and reach out to them? And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.